Good morning and welcome to Legal Offense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing excellently well, very well. Um, excellently well. Excellently well. It's better than just excellent or well. It's both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is, is that because you can now go out and play golf or is it too early still? It, it's a little too early still. I, I did get out and play nine holes so far and it was like holding on to an icicle. Um, <laughs> I have seen, I have seen the brave and the daring out on the golf courses as I drive by. And, um, uh, I imagined it was a little icicle like, but yeah, I mean, my threshold is 38 degrees and even then it's not really fun, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're hoping that, uh, given the fact that it's almost may come on. I mean, uh, yeah, it is a little amazing that we're what in this is going on? still kind of frigid, you know, plunge uh, this late in the year. But whatever. I don't know. Wisconsin. But uh, all right. <laughs> well, you know, Wisconsin made big news again earlier this week with uh, <sighs> yeah. uh, the discovery of a 10 year old girl's body and the subsequent arrest of a 14 year old boy. And uh, we were just talking about this before the show started, but uh, was it Inside Edition or somebody wanted to talk to us about the case? And um, at that time, earlier this week, I didn't really know that much about it. Still don't know that much about it, other than it's clearly a juvenile that the DA's office is contemplating uh, charging as an adult. So I thought we could talk a little bit about how all that works and really the fact that there is no bright line rule in Wisconsin. Many states do have, you know, a firm cutoff for when they will uh, have the opportunity to prosecute somebody as an adult uh, versus a juvenile. And let's just start with that because the juvenile system, we actually have a very uh, good one here in Wisconsin in the sense that no matter what the offense, as long as uh, there isn't a quote unquote waiver into adult court when somebody's under, you know, 18, there they can be, well, 17, I should say, um, can be treated in the juvenile system. So, you know, we've had cases that involved very serious conduct that um, still was able to stay in juvenile court. And usually if it's like a, a sex related offense of some kind, uh, it's understood that sometimes, you know, juvenile adolescents have, you know, some need some guidance, need some help in that area. And so we have a, a far less, I would say, punitive uh, aspect of our juvenile system than many other states do. I mean, a lot of states, if someone's found delinquent, it's kind of automatically a similar confinement scenario that although that can happen in Wisconsin, there's a strong preference for that not being the case. So in juvenile proceedings, it's some argue that it's a a bit unfair because there's no right to a jury trial. There's no um, the evidentiary standards, although they're similar to what we see in the criminal context. They're not exactly you know, applied because you don't have a jury trial. You have a fact finding hearing in front of a judge. And again, I don't know if this is good or bad, but there tends to be a great deal of emphasis on resolving the case uh, short of a fact finding hearing where there's a lot of kind of uh, intense negotiations that occur 
to try and get somebody into a supervision plan that that will be not too onerous. And I found that um, the greatest ally of a juvenile in those situations is the social worker assigned to the case and having a good lawyer to guide the family through the process. And uh, typically, even in very serious cases, we see it entirely possible that somebody doesn't have to be charged as an adult, doesn't have to be put into the criminal system. And hopefully there's no real confinement, just some supervision, help, counseling, that kind of thing. And then the idea behind a juvenile proceeding is that it doesn't result in a permanent conviction of record, uh, a criminal conviction if a person successfully goes through the program, even if they're found delinquent. But um, there are ramifications for firearm possession. Uh, anything that would be a felony if the person had been an adult can also be a prohibition on possession of firearms later in life. So that's the general background. And the way it stands right now, um, I'm sure you're familiar, John, with the Slender Man cases. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yeah. And that was um, another situation kind of similar in the sense that there was an, an attempted murder. And the reason that got so much media attention was because it was kind of weird that it was all based on this Slender Man thing, but also that the kids involved, I think, were, what, 14 and 15 years old. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that did manage to stay in. Well, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't in the juvenile system per se, but it, it did go into, uh, you know, the mental health realm because there were findings of not guilty by um, mental disease or defect, which is a, kind of a, it's kind of an odd overlapping thing when you have those two issues present, somebody being eligible to be treated as a juvenile, but at the same time, this mental health concern that requires that type of supervision. So anyway, we know very little about this case because it's just breaking, but um, well, I won't be surprised if this turns into an adult court uh, prosecution. I would be shocked if it didn't. Right. Um, first of all, um, the, the the little reporting that we have appears to pee that this kid made admissions. Now, how they got to you know see him as a suspect, I don't know. What were the tips? There was two hundred tips. Um, forwarded to authorities, what those were, I don't know. How they got to his house, I don't know. Um, you know, and, um, for, you know, I'm just guessing, but maybe they knew each other at school, maybe they knew each other online, you know, they looked at her social media feed, I don't know. Mm -hmm. you know? But um, however they got to him, it appears from the reporting that he made admissions about how he you know, beat her, beat her with a stick, strangled her, sexually assaulted her, um, and had wanted to kill her. <clears throat> now, I, I don't know about, you know, the accuracy of any of that. But what I do know, and this, and this is actually, I think, a really important um, aspect to, 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 to speak about, because I think a lot of people look at both this and the Slender Man case as and they just use the word evil, you know. I I remember talking, um, frankly, to my brother who, you know, doesn't live here, but he grew up here, um, and he used that word in the Slenderman case, and I and I stopped him in his tracks. I said, "No, you have no idea what's going on here. Right. You have no idea what sort of mental illness is going on." 
And but the other thing that that um, I thought was really remarkable about both those cases is the way that these children are interviewed. Um, and as you know, interviewing child witnesses is a very delicate thing. And it should be a very delicate thing because as we found out in the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, children can be easily manipulated. And there was, you know, hundreds of people went to prison for long terms for child molestation that never occurred because of the way children were interviewed. And so they came up with these protocols um, to, um, you know, increase the reliability of child reporting. Theoretically, um, yeah. Theoretically, right, right. That's, uh, you know, the, the, the actual worth of it is highly open to question. But in any event, um, it appears that, well, I know in Slenderman, they were just interviewed by detectives. Nobody, no parents there, no lawyers there. And it was kind of a grilling. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, we don't have any, you know, evidence of how this interview went down with this kid, but I suspect it was very much the same thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the manner of interviewing a, a child who is a suspect, you have to believe and assume that it's very different than someone who is an alleged victim. Um, but, but should it, but should it be? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, but, but there's problems with the interviewing alleged victims that, that lead you know, it's this myopic view and it's, it's part of the bigger problems that we have in our system when, um, you know, investigators form a theory in their heads and it's almost like they can't help themselves, but the evidence starts to conform to that theory um, one way or another. Add to that, if it's somebody who's highly manipulable just because the person's only 14 years old doesn't have a firm grasp on, you know, these types of things only, only knows what he knows about the just, you know, quote unquote justice system based on television movies and what little exposure they have to that in civics class. Um, you know, it, it, it's a highly, highly questionable process. Now, of course, interviewing is the, the, uh, you know, the chicken soup of, uh, all investigation, right? I mean, it's what is, it's a stand, standard fare and <laughs> it mm -hmm. has to be done. I get that. But anyway, we got to take a break. Soup. I want to follow up on the chicken soup. Thing, okay. but go ahead. All right. We'll follow up <laughs> on that right after these minutes. And we are back with more legal defense and chicken soup of legal defense. <laughs> yeah. You know, the I, chicken soup of investigations is interviewing. <laughs> that is on honest to God uh, for all the years I've been doing this. I've, Never heard quite a oh that's quite uh, a Socrates. that's you description. Know. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. <clears throat> well, you never know what comes out of my mouth. It's, it's <laughs> I get surprised by it myself. You know, often. I mean, it might be a good way to explain to a jury, you know, <laughs> the course of an investigation, and you know, and and they didn't do much chicken souping, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen of the jury. So therefore, my client's not guilty. You know, you remember where's the beef? You'd be like, where's the chicken where's soup? Where's the beef? Yeah, that's. We're, but you're gonna um, have the, of course, that's, of course, people need to be interviewed. That's how all investigations are are rooted. But you know what I'm talking about, John? It's this whole phenomenon we see, you know, in virtually every case. And sometimes the the cops are right on, and you know, oftentimes they're not. And you know, I see it especially when there's competing inferences that 
could be drawn from any particular situation. And and we have this phenomenon where investigators sort of craft the evidence around what they think happened. I mean, we have instructions for jurors to be careful not to speculate, to be sure that they're not basing their decision of guilt or innocence based on a hunch or a guess. But that's exactly what invest all investigations are. And the human element that uh, is involved with creating this, this evidence and how it's molded and fashioned is precisely that. Um, it, but anyway, getting back to this um, juvenile situation, the law in Wisconsin is that um, somebody who is under 17 can make their way into adult court if there is a waiver into adult court, which is a motion that gets filed by um, the prosecution. And the standard is simply if it's a serious enough offense that in the discretion of the DA's office um, and with the judge's approval, that it can proceed as an adult criminal case. So homicides tend to fall in that category generally. Well, and I, and I'm not um, a, a frequent practitioner in juvenile matters, but I believe there's a a number of instances, including in homicides where you can be charged originally as an adult. And then there's a, uh, there's a um, process called a reverse waiver where where we, where you try and um, remove them instead of like bringing them from juvenile to adult court, you, you are trying to remove, remove them back from adult court to juvenile court. Now, I don't, I, and I believe that's only applies to homicides, but maybe not. Well, it's typical that you'd only be talking about it in the context of a homicide or something as serious. Um, so I think that by default, it tends to be homicides, but you know, cause, because one of the standards is what the penalty would be if the person were an adult and therefore how serious of an offense it is. So if it's a class A felony or class B felony, if the person were an adult, then yeah, you know, it kind of automatically gives the state that argument. But isn't it also true? You can see the complexity of these issues that one of the factors, like we just said about the Slenderman case is, you know, what are the mental health aspects of this? Not just um, standard like mental health problems or diseases, but the maturity and, uh, you know, sophistication, I guess you could say, of the defendant or juvenile in a situation like that. And that's the very reason why we have juvenile court is because we don't hold children to the same standard in about a thousand different ways as adults, which is why you can't get a driver's license to till a certain age. You can't drink alcohol till a certain age. You can't vote till a certain age. You can't smoke cigarettes till a certain age. You can't uh, sign a contract legally binding yourself until a certain age. You can't consent to sexual activity until a certain age, you know, and by the way, all those are different ages. <laughs> there's, there's no continuity between those things, but they all reflect the same basic principle that a child is legally incapable of making a significant enough, uh, having a significant enough understanding of the dynamics of a contract or the responsibilities that one undertakes in, uh, you know, whatever voting, for example, you know, why do we not let people vote until they're 18? Well, because 
we don't trust that they have the good judgment and intelligence and you know the sophistication in order to make a responsible choice that way. And, yeah. and yet, and yet, these these age um, demarcations are more than a little arbitrary, you know. And there's no, you know, they weren't set with some empirical study that was done to show that oh, you know, as soon as the day you, you turn eighteen, that you have the mental um, maturity and acuity to vote or mm-hmm. uh, to enter the military, which of course you could do before you're 18 with your parents' consent. With your parents' consent, yeah. Um, and, um, or um, you, you certainly can't drink. Well, you used to be able to, but now we're going to, now we're going to make it 21. And, and then, they, you know, they changed it to 18 and, and at least in Wisconsin. And then, of course, one state has 21 and one state has it 18. So, of course, the border counties. <laughs> Are filled with drunk teenagers, um, <laughs> you know, and, and in fact, you can drink as a, I believe, 16 year old in a bar with your parents in Wisconsin. Uh, I don't know that there is an actual age limit. I think you can be younger than that. I oh, okay. You know what? I'll check on that and we'll. I thought uh, it was 16, but uh, not that my parents would have ever taken me anywhere. But Right. No, that's true. In Wisconsin, <laughs> it is legal for somebody under 21 to drink so in a I bar guess, with their parents you know, present. And yeah. I guess the point is, is that, you know, these um, arbitrary lines that we draw, um, I guess, give us some comfort to have some clarity in what the law is. Uh, but yet when we when we talk about juveniles and prosecution, especially in serious cases like this, we seem to throw that all out the window. And I think a lot of that um, development of the statutes about, you know, you can charge young, you know, as young as 10 years old as an adult um, was really aimed at inner city crime violence, you know. And of course, by inner city, that's like some loose legal code for black people. Um, and, and so, and that's just a fact. Um, I mean, that's, if you look back at the uh, debates, um, when all of that was negotiated, probably in the nineties, as I recall, but, um, it was the height of the war on crime, the war on drugs. And, um, a lot of that was focused on, um, you know, um, urban areas, uh, primarily populated with, uh, brown and black people. And, 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 and that was, it's very intent, you know? And so, um, you know, to get back to, you know, children just are not developed. They just aren't, you know, even, even supposed adults in their late teens, early twenties are not fully developed. Well, right. There's, it's generally accepted in the, you know, medical and scientific community that the average uh, male doesn't reach full mental maturity until at least age 25. Um, and, and then there's plenty of people that never reach full maturity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, that's, it's a, it's a problem in our system in the sense that, you know, you're right. We have to have rules. If you don't have rules, how do you follow rules? Right. And how do you apply things evenly and, um, supposedly with the, you know, the blindfold over lady justice, um, in a way where you don't have standards or rules or, or benchmarks or any of these other things. I mean, that just makes society run more smoothly. The problem is um, it, it is arbitrary. It's completely arbitrary. 
So then think about the alternative, though, just in terms of how complex this is. Let's say there was a way to gauge the mental maturity. And there are ways, but they're not at all accurate. You know, like this person has the the mental age of a six-year-old, you know, stuff like that. Um, that that's not actually saying that it's the same as an average six-year-old. It's just based on, you know, various psychological instruments that can be utilized to, to make a rough guesstimate as to someone's uh, maturity level. But it, it has little to do with the concept we're talking about, which is when should and can somebody be held legally responsible for all the things that the consequences that flow from bad decisions or, you know, in many cases, um, an untreated mental health need. Um, so, you know, what if there was a way where there, someone could go through a battery of tests and then an expert gets on the stand and say, this person should be treated like they're 12, even though they're 14. Or <laughs> you can see how that opens the door to all kinds of um, problematic uh slippery slope issues, you know, and um, it's just, it's baffling to me how uh, there's all these efforts in our system to try and uh, objectify or have a way of really justifying a prosecutor's decision, even though it's supposed to be discretionary and supposed to be based on uh, reason and so forth. Uh, We see these types of squishy issues get manipulated in a way that where, you know, frankly, it becomes political. So this kid's in the middle of, you know, a, a hot mess where, you know, yes, there is a dead person involved. And yes, we got to take that seriously. But, you know, we'll see how this pans out. These things never, never go very well. But anyway, time for a break, John. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back. We made it through the commercials again. Sometimes I wonder if we'll survive, but we did. Huh. <laughs> it was a close one this time. I'll tell you. Close one. I, mean, I, uh, I was right on the edge. Yeah, right I was out the, the door. No. <laughs> yeah, no, I was. I was actually yeah, on the ledge, and somebody yeah. had to talk me off the ledge. But anyway, um, so you know, you brought something up that I thought would be um, timely to follow up on, and that is the um, during the eighties and nineties when there had been a strong push to advance the war on crime, the war on drugs, and how that ended up being a targeting certain zip codes. And as we often say on this show, it's an, just an absolute fact. Uh, Wisconsin bears the shame of having the most incarcerated zip code in the entire country. Um, but did you see earlier this week that the report um, as a follow-up to the George Floyd murder um, and the uh, into, into police activities in, in Minnesota came out Um with some horrifying, uh, you know, revelations in there, um, including, you know, and I know one example they gave was in an area that has approximately a 16% minority population, 78% of all arrests were made um, against black and brown people and a pervasive presence of um, misogynist, racist, language and behavior that was just tolerated, accepted, and probably even promoted within a law enforcement agency. And I, I can't believe we're well into the 21st century here. I mean, over 20 years into the 21st century. And we still have these systemic problems that exist in government agencies. I mean, how stupid is that? <laughs> 
I, well, I mean, I I think that um, really what we're dealing with is something that's um, hard for us to grasp because we see ourselves and imagine ourselves as rational human beings that can, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, eliminate bad thoughts like racism and sexism and um, that sort of thing from our heads or, you know, religious bigotry or whatever it is. And, um, and that we, and, and that we can see things clearly. And yet there's so much, and this is really getting deep into sort of like the neurological workings of the human mind, but there's so much of what we do every day that is subconscious. Right. And that is passed on that history has just like embedded in us either, um, you know, just we've absorbed it from the generations before we've been taught in school, certain things. And a lot of it is just subliminal. You know, it's it's sort of like, um, you know, you could look at the United States and say, you know, and take one view and say, we're just a totally racist country and it's that all it's ever based, been based on and we're just evil and awful and um, um, and uh, and we're uh, empire, um, colonialist, uh, you know, oppressive, um, power-hungry, greedy, you know, world-dominating country. Okay, so and and on the other hand, you could have absorbed as a child, you know, when America's number one, and we we conquered this, you know, very rough land called uh, you know uh, North America, and and we went from sea to shining sea, and we fought the good fight against the Nazis, and we did a lot of we did so much good in the world, and and you know what. They're both kind of right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. No, you know? and, I, and I I agree with you that you know now we're getting into the broader concept, and I I hesitate to even use the term because it's so loaded. But you know, critical race theory. What what is that? And I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what it is, and that it's somehow anti-American and and that type of thing. But you know, there is an there's an intersect between the, some of the concepts that, by the way, that's supposed to be like a college level deep dive into, you know, yeah, it's actually um, a graduate problems <laughs> and the, the pervasiveness of, you know, and you're right. I mean, it, the, a lot of it is addressing what is and should be common sense, which is if you don't have a lot of exposure to anything, but, you know, a bright and shiny view of what this country is all about, you're going to have, you know, probably an, an inaccurate view of what the problems in our country are. And, you know, really it, a lot of people view critical race theory as though it's, you know, this uh, pessimistic, shameful uh, approach to make pe white people feel guilty. And it, it's just, it's not that. So I wish people knew what they were talking about when they said that. But um, in fact, it's just a broad concept that talks about examining why racism persists in our society. That's really what it is. And it does. I mean, how can you say it doesn't? And again, and again, this is something embedded into your brain that maybe you're not even aware of, you know? And I think even the most liberal minded of people have that, even though if they're not willing to admit it, right. you know, um, they, they may, you know, um, drive through uh, a, a neighborhood like, uh, and, you know, see, you know, um, uh, 
a bunch of young black males and automatically think, you know, oh, they're going to remember, oh, yeah, I saw these mugshots on the news for years and years and years all the while I was growing up. So those must be little gangbangers, you know, whatever, okay. you know. I'll, I'll be honest with you, John. When, I, when I'm driving in downtown Milwaukee and I see people sort of, uh, you know, milling about on a street corner, I check to see if my doors are locked. I mean, I'll admit it. I do. You know, <laughs> it's just so, and so, and you're like among the most, you know, um, open-minded people ever, but you know, we all have that embedded yeah. in us and some, and somehow Donald Trump has opened the door to allowing people to say out loud what they had never wanted to say, you know, or maybe wanted to say, but didn't feel well. Had, yeah, had, had never dared to say, I guess. And yeah. now they're daring to say it. And you know, honestly, with the social media environment that we now live in, which I find more and more distressing as the years go on. Um, oh, by the I, way, I, I got a call just before the show started from Elon Musk, and he wants to know if we <laughs> we want to buy Twitter now. Um, <laughs> He's, he's having buyer's remorse. Yeah, well, um, he's also was shut down by a judge. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, you remember when he um, issued some tweets about that, um, at least arguably, that could have affected uh, Tesla stock? Yes. Um, and <laughs> and I don't know if his explanation was, you know, I was drunk or I was <laughs> smoking pot or something, but, but you know, regulators – you know, wanted he wanted to like shut down the investigation into that, and some judge just just told him that his claim had zero um, merit, and the judge also called it quite ironic since he's trying to buy Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but you know that I, you know honestly, the to, to whether or not you want him in particular to own Twitter, these social media companies are just. They're vastly more powerful than um, even the government now. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. and they're and they're global. It's a huge issue because you know this is one of those areas where our ideals as a free and open <clears throat> society um, just it's our impulse to protect all forms of speech, no matter no matter what is being said or how offensive, or in this case, the potential for damage to be done uh, against people, governments, uh, society, all kinds of things, right? But if you really think hard about why we're supposed to have these freedoms, it's all premised on, again, we got to put it in the context of what happened in our relationship with England and the fact that colonists were being treated very differently than uh, normal United Kingdom citizens. Well, I shouldn't say United Kingdom. I should say British citizens, right? British. Because, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I don't think the people in India or other places that were part of the British Empire had, you know, the same rights as those that were living in Bristol. But uh, anyway, the the notion that, um, you know, it's it's an egalitarian concept that the ability to criticize, speak out, and educate your peers on issues that are important to you and to basically protest what you see going on in your, in your own way with your own words <clears throat> is something that is fundamental to, to preventing dictatorships and, and monarchies. Right. So yeah. the problem, I don't think anyone ever envisioned 
a scenario such as this where the spreading of misinformation, the deliberate spreading of misinformation can have such a dramatic consequence on world events, um, including the war that's going on right now in Ukraine. So that, you know, really the thing that I'm most distressed about is that, um, is that a lot of people feel like there's no source they can trust. Yeah. So they're going to, they're going to gravitate break. So I want want to pick up with that very idea. um, When we come back, we'll be right back. And we're back with more legal defense. Hey, um, so we left off, we were talking, we're kind of going in a deep subject here, but um, uh, why don't you remind our viewers where we left off here? Yeah. You talked about the, you were getting into the fact that, uh, when we have this trend of, you know, no standards, no, no reliability, no, no real truth being, uh, you know, required in, in what's being broadcast on social media, it has the tendency and has created, um, the great concern that you can't trust anything. You know, you were saying how this, what, what source you got to pick a source, right? You know, right. And, and, um, you know, with me, well, when when I was coming up, there was traditional media, you know, and there was no social media. There was no, you know, websites. There was really no internet to speak of. Um, I mean, I guess it existed for, like, the Defense Department. But, right. Um, yeah. Other than that, you know, I mean, it wasn't a thing until really the 90s. And um, uh, and then even then it was sort of nascent. Um, so it's really been since... You know, I don't know, 2005 to 2008, somewhere in that range that things began to go down the road that they are now um, in terms of, uh, you know, the Internet and the Web sort of owning all the space for um, news media, for economics, you know, the whole thing. And 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 it's and it's um, uh, developed into this thing where, um, you know, when anybody can, you know, start a news company or start a blog or just like spout off what they want to think, you know, that seems on its face, like a really positive thing. It's free speech. Everyone can speak their mind. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of idiots doing it. And a lot of people literally saying false things just to generate, um, attention for themselves, whether they psychologically need it or they're trying to sell something. Right. Alex money, Jones it could be a, money. Too. Alex Jones is a perfect example. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched his now defunct um, uh, show. Yes. But um, it was, it was just amazing. And then he finally got his come on, come uppance when uh, the parents of the Sandy hook um, child victims um, sued him for calling it a big hoax. Yeah. And and, you know, thank God they had the courage to keep going on that suit and really take him to task, you know, uh, for this just like blatant lie that he was telling about their kids. I don't know if it was a defamation suit. Yeah, it Um, it was the the fact that it caused direct mental anguish to the you know survivors and the parents of victims. And so and and so, you know, the problem is, is that there's all, you know, and to to. A, a lesser degree and a more polished degree, you know, Fox News sort of takes the same stance. One American News Network, um, you know, you can go on and on. Breitbart, um, uh, 
you know, but you got to look at the other side of the coin because then there's the MSNBCs and the CNNs, which have basically done the same thing, except in the other direction. I I mean, there's an argument to be made that there's, that's part of the polarization that's occurred in our country. I think there's some truth, but I think it's also a a, uh, false equivalency in a lot of ways um, because uh, you know, and I don't really watch that much cable. I don't have cable, but when I do, you know, get exposed to it, I don't find that even though the, they have a liberal tint to MSNBC and to CNN, possibly, arguably at least, um, I think there's at least some attempt to at least you know to not be, you know, hysterical about things. But I, it's very clear when you watch Fox or these other, you know, conservative outlets, they are being hysterical. You know, well, like, there's there's another component to this that I think has contributed to it, and you know, social media. The the fact that social media took off, as you said, sometime in the mid two thousands, and became something that is now like an all consuming aspect of many many people's lives. You know, it kind of goes back to before then the concept of the twenty four hour news channel, because I remember when I was a kid. You know, there was the newspaper and there was the six o'clock news, which was a half hour long. Half and, hour, then, right. you know, once a week you'd watch the, you know, whatever, the Sunday morning thing, you know. But, you know, the fact that there were limited opportunities to um, throw a lot of speculation at viewers or consumers of information necessarily made it so it was to the point, right? So, I, I love Anchorman, you know that, the movie, but the oh. Anchorman 2, which really kind of railed on this whole concept that uh, a 24-hour news channel would necessarily have to fill the space. You know, you got to right. turn a half hour into 24 hours. So how do you do that? There's a lot of, you know, kind of like what we're doing right now. You know, there's a concept and you just kind of vamp it, you know, for, well, for, here's, for here's, here's the thing is back when it was a limited time frame, you know, the newspaper, the six o'clock news, um, you, you had, you had a certain amount of time and a certain amount of space to explain everything you wanted to explain. So you had to curate what was important and you had to be very careful about making sure that it was true because, right. You know, whatever you said was going to be taken very seriously. But when you have 24 hours of just blah, 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 um, you know, the only way that you keep people glued to their sets is by having, you know, constant drama going on. Yeah. For example, here's the perfect example. You remember the caravans of Central American refugees that were coming and, you know, it was like an invasion. And these were a bunch of poor people running away from MS-13 and other, you know, drug cartels, right? Come trying to come to the United States, but they were they were portrayed as like dangerous criminals coming up here and to invade the United States. And then, and then of course, and when it never happened, they just moved on to the next outrage. And so that's right, what I mean right. about and, his, and that's, that's the very essence of the problem is that when, you know, people, people subscribe to cable networks, right. The way that all of the money is made in that world is through advertising. Right. And, in order to have viewers, they have to have something that people want to watch. So a lot of this is just a, an approximation on the, the part of quote unquote news sources to engage watchers in their, in their own way. And a lot of that just necessarily includes 
a lot of um, hyperbole, speculation, and you know, meaty stuff that isn't necessarily <laughs> you know anything. But you're right. I, I think about uh, Walter Cronkite or somebody like that that would that would deliver the news to you. I mean, each news piece would be no more than like 30 seconds or 45 seconds. And it would just be the basic, this is what's happening. This is what somebody is reporting. We'll keep you updated when we know more. That's it. Boom. And here's here's an interesting aspect to him is because he was viewed widely and, and literally it's called the most trusted man in America. Right. If you, if you remember, right. And this was during a time in the sixties and seventies, when there was massive distrust of the government, the Vietnam War was going on, the, the youth of America were rising up and saying, you're a bunch of liars. And in fact, they were lying about a lot of things going on with the war. And then Watergate happened. And then the president of the United States has to resign in disgrace. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, and so this, this, this long period of years, all the while, we had him at sort of the helm of saying, okay, here's one thing you can trust. Here's right. one, one avenue you can trust. We don't have that anymore. That's true. That's true. And, and, um, but that's- let, me, let me make one other point before we completely run out of time here. And it's just to kind of throw out there concerns I have just personally and philosophically about this whole problem that we have. It's very, very dangerous when we start talking about um, restricting speech based on these concepts. And that's where I run into a problem in my own head, because I'll just remind everybody, that's what the Soviet Union did. That's what it still exists in communist countries like China, where the the, uh, the leadership doesn't trust the ability for the the working class or the working people to have valid opinions because they're dumb, right? I mean, that's a, that is a key component of a dictatorship or a, or, or a totalitarian government is when you don't trust people to be smart enough. Now, one might argue, and you're probably right, that that was built into our own governmental um, structure when we first formed government. Because when we say all people, we didn't mean all people. We meant men that owned land and we're not black. Right. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, it, it's just, I, I do have concerns about what the remedy is because anything that would say Joe Sixpack doesn't have a right to say whatever he wants, true or not, is if the government is involved in that kind of, you know, Hey, let's call it what it is. Censorship. Well, you know, we're probably going to run out of time, but we'll have to pick this up in another show. But, uh, you know, a lot of the censorship is really going on with private companies right now. Yeah, it it really is. All right. That's all the time we have. So thanks for tuning in. You can tune in every Saturday right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.